Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how to go from happiness to hopefulness with my guest, Dr. Carol Graham who is the Leo Pazvolsky Senior Fellow at Brookings Institution, College Park Professor at the University of Maryland, and a Gallup Senior Scientist. Graham is the author of numerous books and journal articles and other publications. Born in Lima, Peru, Graham has an A.B. from Princeton University and and an M.A. from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, And her PhD is from Oxford University. She is the mother of three, no doubt, amazing kids, because I feel that way about my kids. Hi, Carol. Hey, good. How are you? I am great. And I am happy to have you here and hope that you are as hopeful and excited to talk about your book as I am to talk about it with you. Well, I'm certainly hopeful about the book. It is a kind of risky topic to undertake an economic, but maybe that's what makes it interesting. And I also think it very much links to what we have going on in our society today. We really need to think about restoring hope or all the other things that we want to do to make people's lives better won't work. People don't hope. Let's talk about the sense of local and global hopelessness and how maybe we're focusing on the wrong things when it comes to happiness. Yeah, there's been um, an increase well-documented in a wonderful book by John Clifton, who's the CEO of Gallup. Um, It's called Blind Spot, and it's about the rise in negative emotion and unhappiness around the world, not just the U.S. and not due to COVID, but since like 2011 work I've also been involved in with Gallup. And I think that unhappiness markers and the negative emotions reflect really a more, a deeper trend, which is the the loss of hope, right? I mean, it's hard if you don't think your future is going to get better. It's it's hard to be happy. It's hard to keep going. Um, And so I think there's, there's, there's a lot going on. The pandemic was a, obviously a shock to everybody's system, but I, I think, it goes deeper than that, and it has to do with just, you know, all sorts of structural changes. Um, I know me is a, is a sort of the opposite of hope. It's kind of the sense that people have lost contact with each other. They, they, they're going nowhere. They have no hope. And I think there's a fair amount of that, um, and there's a whole lot of it in the U.S. Why is there so much despair in the U.S., do you think? I mean, I think we can all... You know, think of a few reasons, but in in your in your research, what have you uncovered? 
what I've uncovered is essentially something that uh, Danny Kahneman, the first psychologist to get Nobel Prize in economics, uncovered longer ago, was that people value losses disproportionately to gain. Now, that sounds very nerdy, but it, it, if you translate it into people's lives, and people, groups who were ahead and getting ahead and believed in the American dream, very much a white blue collar story, are falling behind. And at the same time, minorities, after much discrimination and lots of challenges and a lot of disadvantages, are continuing to plug along. And, you know, so minorities have narrowed a lot of gaps with whites, um, things like life expectancy, almost, not quite, re, uh, education, marriage rates, all sorts of things, even college attendance, and yet it's the, the whites are still relatively privileged, blue-collar whites, compared to, to minorities. They're not the poorest people in society, low-income whites by far, but they've fallen behind, and they see themselves falling further and further behind. And they also are really out of touch with the kinds of lives that rich whites lead. So on the one hand, there's, you know, rising inequality and, and also something by what we know now is declining mobility rates, declining opportunities to get ahead, and your outcome depends more and more on where you start in the income distribution. So that's one on the one side. And then on the other, minorities have continued to believe that they can get ahead. They continue to invest in education when they can. Um, and they haven't gotten caught as much as low-income whites have in the political kind of craziness that we also have going on in misinformation, in radicalization, and all sorts of things. So it's a very large population group that's not doing well, even though they are not by far the poorest. When you talk about the, the white population, blue-collar white population feeling more despair or feeling as though they are missing out on opportunity, is that frustration or fear or grief over that sense of loss, fueling more of the polarization. Absolutely. It, you know, there has to be blame somewhere, you know? Yeah, you have to, if you're, if particularly, this is sort of ironic. Whites believe the American sort of dream legend, you work hard, you get ahead. But the, the counter to that is if you're poor, you're a loser. You didn't work hard. It's very individualistic work ethic belief. And yet, if you were a minority over the past, 50 years, you know that the system doesn't always work. Minorities have built what I call communities of empathy. Even if they get ahead, they have somebody in their family or the friendship circle that's fallen behind. And they tend to be informal safety. Um, both African Americans and Hispanic Americans have that. Whites do not. Their social structures were much more rigid, much more individualistic. It was a nuclear family. And the, the, maybe the union, certainly the manufacturing firm. And so when all those things fell apart, when the manufacturing jobs, the mining jobs went away, so did the Rotary clubs and the unions and, and families also fell apart. So you get, particularly for white males, but not only, you get a, a, a combination of isolation, you know, lack of hope and unfortunately anger that has very much fueled the polarization we have, and it turns out, some more recent work I've been doing on despair with some neurologists, 
is that people who are desperate are much more vulnerable to conspiracy theories, to misinformation, to radicalization. And if you know, if you think about it, that makes sense, right? If you're desperate, you don't care if you're going to live or die. And so you'll sort of latch on to anything. You have no other purpose or meaning in your life. So if you, it's much easier to latch on to these things. And if you're in isolation, even more so. And so you have this kind of weird combination of despair or lack of hope, um, you know, actual, you know, relative decline of this group, and also a sense of loss of privilege, right? Um, and yeah. so it's... Uh, and entitlement. Right. Entitlement also. <laughs> yeah, you used to have, you know, access to... Um, privileged access to the good blue-collar jobs. And the white story, the blue-collar white story, was not college. It was you went to high school, and then you, you know, you um, you got a good job in a firm, factory, or mine. I mean, good is a word, but you worked hard. You had respect. You had a purpose, and you had sort of a, a nuclear family. And minorities have had a very different trajectory, much much more complicated, but much more full of social ties, you know, kind of uh, full, more appreciation for culture, music, whatever it might be, that is, if you if you go to some of these hollowed out manufacturing communities, what really strikes you is the sort of nothing, right, that's there. Um, and, you know, you go to a poor neighborhood in Latin America and it's bubbling with all kinds of stuff, including problems with lots of Lots of other things that have to do, you know, with with extended families and you know, all sorts of other things that that seem to they don't just fill a gap. They really provide a a, a, a kind of societal fabric that really matters to to people's lives. And in the absence of the more formal workplace structures that blue collar whites used to rely on. There's not anything at the moment to replace. It's interesting that you talk about communities in South America or just Latin America in general, because my experience having traveled to those places is a sense of joy, irregardless of economics. And maybe that is because of this, the, the social network that they have and the sense that that we are our brother's keeper, that if I am not doing well, then how can you be doing well? Right. And as as you noted in my bio, I was born in Peru and I'm part Peruvian. And as I grew up, everybody was your aunt or uncle, yeah. even though they weren't, right? Right. It was just, it was, it was normal. A close family friend, if, you know, you'd call him Theo or Tia, which means uncle or aunt. And it, it was just, it was a form of endearment. And, but it also signifies this kind of feeling of an extended family. And that's a, that's a pretty powerful, um, sort of backup as you go through life. And then the other thing is we find this in the large data analysis we do around the world about all kinds of well-being, um, metrics, not just happiness, but certainly including it. And there's just a, a, a positive bias in the way Latin Americans view the world. And, respond to the questions. And so they always score much higher than other regions on the metrics than other regions that are wealthier, like Eastern European, they also scores very low. <laughs> but per capita income is higher in Eastern Europe by far. But yet they they have the opposite. They have a bit of 
what we have going on here. The same thing translates, though, to African-American populations in the U.S. Um, now, it's harder to generalize, and you've got lots of other problems, like a lot of incarcerated young males and gang, gang, um, sort of gangs in cities, and, you know, not, it's not rosy, but for the most part, it's, it's pretty amazing, one in the data, how much more hopeful and resilient and optimistic low-income African-Americans are than low-income whites. And one of the things is the same kind of community of empathy. I think in the case of African-Americans, it's Baptist churches, churches which yeah. are very community-oriented. But, you know, you could, I could go on forever. Let's take a pause, and then we can come back to this. We're going to take a break, and before we come back, I want to tell you how to get in touch with Carol. You can reach out to her on Twitter at CG. Brookings. We're talking about Carol's book, The Power of Hope, How the Science of Well-Being Can Save Us from Despair. We'll be back to have more conversation with Professor Carol Graham. And I also want to give a plug to some of your other books for those happiness seekers and skeptics as well. Carol has authored Happiness for All, Unequal Hopes and Lives in Pursuit of the American Dream. That was in 2017. The Pursuit of Happiness in 2011 and Happiness Around the World, The Paradox of Happy Peasants and Miserable Millionaires. That was in 2010. Let's take a pause. We'll be right back. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for nutritious helpings of positive goodness. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and at the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com to explore experiential online and on-site optimal lifestyle management consulting services, including recovery fortification and life crisis triage. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Carol Graham. We're talking about moving from happiness to hopefulness. Let's get back to it. So, Carol, we had talked a little bit about the inequities in the United States. I would love to to also talk about affluenza and, you know, when our wealth goes and we're left sort of having to redefine our lives, where hopefulness plays a huge role. Well, I think we should start by just looking at the hopefulness and resilience of poor minorities and and also poor people in poor countries. And, you know, I'm from Latin America, as I mentioned before, you, you go to the to poor places in Latin America and the amount of sort of hope in the air, joyfulness, music, culture. And I think if more recently I've done some work on African-American communities and you, you see a very similar effect in fact low-income African-Americans are the most optimistic and hopeful uh, income race cohort in the country by far, by far. Before Trump, after Trump, before COVID, after COVID. I mean, they, those were great big knocks for the African-American community, and yet the, their resilience just really shows up. So then what is it about affluence that's bad? Well, one, I think, is that you start caring about money more than other things. And we've done some more technical data work that shows that people 
who are in the least happy distribution, not the least, the lowest income distribution, but the lowest happiness distribution, value money mm. more than others. And people at the top, the happiest people, love learning and creativity. They don't care much about money. Many years ago, I had gone to Cuba for um, the Latin American International Positive Psychology Conference, and I did uh, two or three presentations. And people, I would talk to them about the Cubans, to me, in general, are a very, very jubilant bunch of folks. And you ask them about their life and they say, look, we could use more provisions. We could use some more supplies. We could use a little bit more money. But our culture is happy. I think that's just spot on. And interestingly enough, I bet if you did a comparison, um, this is just a bet, so I'm not, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. But I should. If you did a comparison of Cubans in Cuba's life satisfaction scores and Cubans in Miami life satisfaction scores, the former yes. would be better, despite being material. Yeah, I agree score. with you. And the interesting thing is that the Cubans that I spoke with, they may or may not be pleased with the government, but the, that the government didn't get in the way of their experience of their of the their experience of a satisfying life, whereas here it speed bumped us. Because it comes from within. It's I, I mean here I would say the amount of political polarization there is has also created a lot of negative social tensions and a lot of you know split up families. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we we had we had quite an unusual government for four years before the current administration. Need I say more? And I, I think it, there were divisions that were already there, but the kind of breakdown of civility that came with those four years, I think, really damaged things, you know, and took them to another lower level. And it, there was no emphasis on values or helping others or, have, you know, having empathy. I mean, the rhetoric was, you know, we, we're going to be great again. We're the greatest nation on earth. You know, it's nothing to do with human emotion. You know, I don't think, you know, we can measure everything through emotions, but I think our lack of attention to emotions as economists, as social scientists, um, the psychologists aside, so I should, should be careful there, has really also re resulted in a, you know, in an economic model that in the end has become misery yeah. produced for a lot of people. I mean, the, the rich aren't happy, and in, in the U.S., a lot of the poor aren't happy either. When we know, talk so. about hopefulness, I think, as everybody knows, we just experienced these midterm elections. And the night that that happened, I went to sleep actually feeling hopeful. I thought, you know, we're not as dumb as we think we are. You know, people have had enough, and people do want change. And I did have that sense of hopefulness. I did too. I was like, people yeah. aren't going to be duped anymore. They were once, and that there was a sense. I think the the most important. I don't know what the most important thing was, but to me, I had the same thing. I went I went to bed feeling okay. We're, we're it's not as bad as I thought. Um, particularly because a lot of the the uh, polls and everything else before the elections were like, if there's going to be a red wave, and it was terrifying as a thought. So there was a relief factor. But I actually think the fact that people didn't vote for election deniers and that most losers in the election actually conceded. They didn't, you know, buy that model of doing, um, of sort of 
running our government or our elections brought a, a sense of hope about our civic culture and belief in democracy and understanding that, you know, cheating and lying is not only not going to take your head, but it, it's not a good way to live and it's not going to produce any kind of improvement in your well-being. Or for society's well-being. And, and we're hurting. I mean, we've come out of these difficult years, and I think there's a lot of repair to be done. And I'm hopeful that the, the strength of the human spirit, the resiliency that, that you talk about is what is the salve that will help. You know, I agree with you, and, and I, hope, I hope that's true. We do have a lot of tangible lessons we can take from different community groups in the U.K., which has led the charge, but some in the U.S., that have tried to increase community well-being by getting people out of social isolation, by trying to improve youth well-being, by teaching them coping skills and things like self-esteem and some of the socio-emotional skills that are more and more important in the labor market of tomorrow. And, you know, if the work changes nature and life changes nature, I think people's ability to be resilient, emotionally stable, and emotionally wise, that some psychiatrists use, is really going to not only help people, but I think it's going to make them much more realistic about, you know, what things in their lives they want to pursue, and it's going to make for what you say is a good one. We're almost out of time, and I would love for you to touch upon well-being science and define what that is for our listeners and, and why it's so important, why it's critical, because it helps shape so many things in our lives. So I was one of the few early crazy economists in the last <laughs> that started looking, looking at life satisfaction measures, which was really all we had, sort of blunt tools, instrument users we early happiness economists were. Um, we learned a lot from the psychologists. But one of the sort of traditional mantras of economics was you can't believe what people say because there's no consequence to what they say. They're, you know, they're, you can't believe survey research. And at the same time, you can only believe choices made within a fixed budget constraint because if you choose one thing over another, there's a consequence to that. You have only a fixed amount of money to choose it. Uh, it turns out, as we know all too well, People make the most perverse consumption decisions. They keep up with the Joneses. They do. They buy things and they wish they hadn't, or whatever it is. And yet, we also find increasingly, increasing number of everything from sophisticated economic models to just plain common sense stories that emotions are very much a part of human decision making and including human economic decisions. And I think we we are are our science and the metrics we use has gotten more robust as we have now learned to distinguish between contentment or momentary happiness and emotional kinds of well-being like uh, stress and anger on the one hand, um, contentment and smiling on the other, and sort of daily measures, experience measures, and much deeper measures like life satisfaction, which is sort of life satisfaction with your life as a whole over your life course that relates to another metric that you hear much less about but matters a lot, which is called eudaimonia, and that is having purpose and meaning in your life, the Aristotelian definition of happiness. And more recently, I've really felt that it is hope that we need to measure explicitly, not implicitly, because hope, of all the things we measure, hope has the most 
agentic properties in the sense that it, people who, they can't just be optimistic. They need, they need to have agency. They need to have a path to make things better, right? You can't just say things will get better, but there's no path to do that. And you often craft that path, but they're just, that's part of the, part of the concept of hope. And I think why it's increasingly important for us to understand as we see, you know, people around the world who have lost that feeling, who feel like their lives are out of control. And I think that is particularly bad, and we're seeing in the anxiety and depression metrics for young people, right? They're starting their lives, and yet there's a sense that everything is in chaos. There's no clear path forward. You know, the labor markets are changing, particularly kids with low skills that aren't, you know, that aren't Princeton graduates or Yale graduates or whatever, but, you know, kids that only graduate from public high school, they need some help figuring out how they can thrive in tomorrow's labor market. And, you know, we're not providing it, and the public high schools aren't either, because they're not, you know, things like socio-emotional skills, resilience, and empathy are not part of the standard public high school curriculum, and yet those are skills that get people through life and, in the end, make for a better life. I agree with you. You know, well, that's Angela Duckworth's work, right? That in terms of the grittiness, and if you take two kids with, you know, one that has a privileged upbringing in the private school, I believe that was her early research, and compare his or her resiliency to a, a child that comes from a less privileged environment, in general, that child from the less privileged environment will possess more grit and ability to be resilient and better problem solve life's everyday problems than the other kid. I totally agree with you. And I think we've exacerbated with helicopter parenting. You know, everybody gets a trophy <laughs> at the soccer tournament. Well, no, Don't get me started. <laughs> you didn't win. Right? So that does not, like, there's another, I love Angela Duckworth's work, but there's a wonderful book by an educator called Jessica Leahy, and it's called The Gift of Failure. And it's why kids need to learn you know, there's things you don't do well. You lost the game. You don't get a trophy. That's okay. But if they don't learn that young, what happens is they don't fail, so they hit a roadblock, like in yeah. college. And then it does. You know, it, it, it creates a crisis. crisis of privilege. Because right? as you say, poor kids have had all kinds of failures because the system fails them too. But I think they've learned to overcome it so much better. And back to the big macro picture than we we talked about the kind of despair in this country. It's it's bigger than this, but the the whole death of despair crisis, the kind of the, the decline of the blue collar working class, the the white working class, and its manifestations in high levels of despair, in a way have it, have to do with them being historically privileged yeah. over minorities, and now they're falling behind, and it you know it's it's like a giant failure. And what do you do with failure? I mean, what does or what does an optimist or a hopeful person do with failure? Right? Turn it into something else. Right. Well, yeah. I've turned. Well, I spent a lot of time, including in the book, thinking about, you know, some of the things that we think about with well-being metrics and interventions to increase resilience, to increase hope. Can those be translated to populations that have no hope? And that's a big question. I, I don't know. I do think that we need to focus on the next generation because, one, they have still their whole lives to get through, and you don't want them to be the next generation in despair. 
but two, because I think having hope for them is really a ticket to them making it, having peace of mind and lives that aren't desperate. For older people, I think it's, you, you can think about things like getting out of isolation, creating avenues for community participation, for volunteering, participating in the arts that all seem to matter to isolated, depressed older people. But for young people, it's more complicated, and I think we have to also think more about mentorships and the kinds of advice that would show them the channels that exist so that they can be yes. hopeful about getting. I agree. And that's that, that community aspect, once again, about you know creating the net, caring for one another, raising all ships, and the belief that I actually can't be well and good and happy if you're not well and good and happy. Like if you don't have an opportunity to experience the same, that's what a best society hopes to do for its people. Right. And we're very far. Oh, very, so far, (laughs) but we have pockets and we can learn from your research that it does exist and learn from this model. And I think that again is very, very hopeful. Well, thank you. I also think, um, I think you're very right about the election and the outcomes and the fact that all of a sudden we realize that people do value things like support for families yeah. and child care and the sense that we are society, a society that can help yeah. people that are falling behind. You know, and we certainly stand out for stinginess of welfare systems and other things among other rich countries. And, Maybe this is, this, you know, it's a, it's a collective call for change. I'm hopeful. My my fingers are crossed and my actions yeah, are, are going to move in that direction as well. And I, I hope that, that you inspire others to do the same because that's what we need. That's what's needed, right? Government exists for us, not the other way around. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you're hopeful. And, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Me too. Me too. My guest today has been Professor Carol Graham. She is the author of The Power of Hope, How the Science of Well-Being Can Save Us from Despair. You can find her over at the Brookings Institution and on Twitter at CG Brookings. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Carol Graham, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mangeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>